0: So take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis 19. You can pray for my voice this morning. We are taking two weeks to use Genesis 19 as an opportunity to inform and equip ourselves biblically on one of the most culturally contentious questions of our day. Actually, it's it's not culturally contentious anymore uh, because we've we've lost that fight. Uh, We're standing on a bit of an island here. But the foundation of that island is the word of God, Um, so that's a pretty good place to stand. As we saw last week, God carries out his terrible but just judgment on Sodom, and we saw that the scriptures are clear. The sin of Sodom for which God executes his judgment is the sin of homosexuality. And so last week, I sought to simply establish the what, that according to God's word, uh, Old Testament and new, all homosexual behavior is a sin. It's just what the Bible says. So you either accept the authority and goodness of God's word and affirm the sinfulness of homosexuality, or you reject God's word outright. What you cannot do is claim to follow Christ, claim to love Christ, claim to love Christ's word, and yet then go on and reject that which he and his word clearly states. Just not an option. Christians cannot celebrate what God condemns. And Genesis 19 makes it very clear that God condemns homosexuality. But I don't want to leave it there and just move on because the Bible doesn't just leave it there and move on. The Bible doesn't just tell us that homosexuality is a sin, but it also tells us very clearly why it is a sin. So I don't want you just to understand that homosexuality is a sin. I want you to understand why it is a sin and so that you can not only agree... That God's word clearly condemns homosexuality, which just cannot be argued, but so that you can also affirm the goodness and the rightness of God's word clearly condemning homosexuality. And we're going to do that this morning. I'm going to try a bit of a different approach. Again, this is the last one. This won't be my most expositional sermons. I'm excited to just get back strictly into the text. Next week, but we're sort of taking the sin of Genesis 19, verses 4 and 5, and using that as a bit of a stepping off point to look at what the rest of God's Word says about that sin. Today, we're trying to understand this text within its context. And if we're going to understand and affirm the goodness and rightness of what God does in Genesis 19, we've got to go back earlier in Genesis. If we're going to understand the wrongness of homosexuality, we've got to first understand the rightness of God's creation. So we've got to go back to the beginning. So if last week we looked forward to see where the rest of Scripture says that homosexuality is a sin, this week we're looking back to see what Genesis says about why homosexuality is a sin and so I hope to accomplish two things this morning. We're going to continue our conversation on homosexuality in hopes that our, our, we will continue to be transformed by the renewal of our minds and that our thinking will be more aligned with God's thinking on this important cultural question. And at the same time, it's going to be a good opportunity to review some of Genesis, because Genesis is the book of beginnings, and beginnings determine ends. And as the beginning of everything, Genesis, it's so important that we understand this book and two of its most crucial claims. So we're going to set the context of Genesis 19 and see the why of the sinfulness of homosexuality by going back and looking at creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, my plan was then to go on to Genesis 3 and 12 and 15 and 17. And then also look at covenant. But there's just not enough time and I'm not going to make you listen to a whole another sermon uh, next week. So creation and covenant are why homosexuality is a sin. And creation and covenant are why in Genesis 19, this is the sin that is specifically singled out by God as a particularly illustrative and graphic example of the nature of sin. And so my goal this morning is to show you the grand goodness and glory of God and his creation. I want you to see and delight in the beauty of God's design. I want you to see the plan and the great purpose of that plan and how good it is. I want you to see that God made you and he made you for a purpose. And if we can see the goodness of that creation and then the purpose of that creation relationship with him, well, then I think we can really start to understand how fundamentally opposed to all of that the sin of homosexuality is. And so I don't just want us to say what we are against. Now, again, that's not a bad thing to do. We need to do that. God does that. But I also want us to see what we are so gloriously for and why it is so good. And if we can paint the picture, if we can really see the beauty of what God is up to, and what he wants for us by the grace of God, I think it will hopefully then be abundantly clear why we must also be against this thing that is so opposed to that which is so good. So, the why of the sinfulness of homosexuality pretty simple. Because of creation, I'm going to somewhat loosely walk through four basic points that I hope will help us see why homosexuality is a sin and why God responds in the way that he does in Genesis 19. First, we're going to see just quite simply, and this should be enough, but it's quite simply because God is creator. So we're going to start with that. And then we're going to see, because God created us to know him, and he created us to know him, he also then created us to glorify him. So there's our our created purpose. And then fourth, we're going to see its sinfulness in light of the fact that Christ is Redeemer. So we start as God as creator. We then see his intent and purpose and plan for that creation. And then we end with Christ as redeemer. And each of those, but especially each of those together, should show us the why of the wrongness and sinfulness of homosexuality. Uh, Let's look at the text. Genesis 19. I am going to read it one last time. This is the last time you will have to hear. I'll read verses 1 through 11. And then what we'll do next week is we're going to come to the whole rest of the text. And we're going to work through that as we focus on Lot and his sinful response, but then what God is doing. Um, So Lot, next time, when we get back into this text. But let me read for us one last time, Genesis 19, verses 1 through 11. Pay attention, because this is God's word, and this is what God wants to say to you today. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, "'My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house "'and spend the night and wash your feet. "'Then you may rise up early and go on your way.' "'They said, "'No, we will spend the night in the town square.' "'But he pressed them strongly. "'So they turned aside to him and entered his house, "'and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, "'and they ate. "'But before they lay down, the men of the city, "'the men of Sodom, both young and old, "'all the people to the last man, surrounded the house.' And they called to Lot, "'Where are the men who came to you tonight? "'Bring them out to us, that we may know them.' "'Lot went out to the men at the entrance, "'shut the door after him, and said, "'I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. "'Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. "'Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. "'Only do nothing to these men, "'for they have come under the shelter of my roof.' "'But they said, "'Stand back.' Father, help us now. I pray that you would be our vision. I pray that our thoughts, our best thoughts would be you, our wisdom, our words, all of those things would be you and would be aligned with the words that you have revealed to us in your scriptures. And in these words, Father, this is a hard text. This is a hard concept for many of us. We have heard for so long and so aggressively from the world the exact opposite of what your word is clearly telling us here. Father, many of us struggle to see it. So Father, I ask you to help me. I ask you to help me to stick to your word. I ask for you to help me to demonstrate your beauty and your glory and your goodness so that we could see you and and what you have done and who you are and and the great gift that it is to know you and to um, glorify you. And Father, I pray that you would show us all of that so that we could then see how uh, this sin that our world so loves and affirms uh, utterly fails to do that. I pray that you would help us um, to delight in you and what you've done. I pray that you would align our convictions with yours. Father, help me, Lord, uh, to be clear, uh, but to be kind. Uh, Father, help me to not say anything uh, silly. Help me to proclaim your word. Father, help us to hear your word and to submit uh, to it and see its goodness. Father, show us your son. Jesus Christ, through your word, we ask and pray in his name. Amen. All right, so we've established the nature of the sin of Sodom, the what, but many of you are still wondering why. We've read twice now God's judgment of Sodom's sin in verses 23 through 29, where God rains sulfur and fire from heaven and overthrows the city. Abraham then looks down on it all and sees the smoke of the land that went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that God destroyed the cities of the valley. Total destruction. Thursday was the 75th anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima little boy. And today, actually, is the 75th anniversary of the dropping of an even bigger bomb, Fat Man, on Nagasaki in Japan. Thankfully, the only use of nuclear weapons in the history of warfare, and the debate over the um, ethicality, and that is a word, I checked, uh, the ethicality of the use of those bombs, that that argument still rages today. Uh, The point is not to enter into that debate here. Uh, the point is that I recently read an account of the bombings um, from some of those who were there. It was, it was horrific. It was hard to read. Total destruction. You can look up the pictures of the mushroom clouds, the smoke of the land going up like the smoke of a furnace. And it's not hard to think of Sodom. And listen, there is legitimate room for debate concerning the ethicality of the Allies' use of the atomic bomb at the end of World War II. But for Christians, there is no room for debate concerning the ethicality, the ethicality of God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we wonder. And the question I want to seek to answer um, for this sermon is, is why? First, not just that it's a sin, why is it a sin? Why is this thing that is so celebrated today, so condemned in Scripture? Why is this thing that seems to be like the sumum bo- the highest good according to the world, actually so bad according to the Word? And why is God's judgment of that sin here so strong? Well, our first point is our first answer. It's because simply God is creator. Let's go back to the beginning. Big, important topic that even in a long sermon I'll only be able to summarize. But I hope that it will be helpful. To understand why the corruption is so bad, we first need to see and understand why the creation is so good. The most important verse in the Bible, the first, Genesis 1.1. You can turn there if you would like. Uh, Page 1, if you need help finding it. Um, In the beginning, God. We're going to spend some time in Genesis 1. So if you want to be looking there, go ahead. In the beginning, God. And some have, I think rightly pointed out, that this is actually the most offensive and controversial verse in the whole Bible. Which is surprising, because last week we just read a bunch of verses that call homosexuality an abomination. And many of you are offended, and you think that that's controversial. But actually, the more controversial claim is this one is Genesis 1.1, because this is the foundational claim. If Genesis 1.1 is true, then everything that comes after Genesis 1.1 necessarily follows. If in the beginning God, first and foremost, you are not God. If in the beginning God, then everything comes from Him and is for Him. If in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then it's all His. And he has the right and the authority to do with it what he wills. And that includes us, man, male and female, which we see in Genesis 1 is the peak and pinnacle of God's creation, but still part of that creation. He's still the creator, we the creature, which means we owe ourselves to him. We owe everything to him. We are his by right of creation. And he has the right and authority to do with us what he wills. And so listen, honestly, we could stop right there. Like, that could be the whole argument. Because if this verse is true, Genesis 1-1, and then this God goes on to say that homosexuality is a sin, then that's it. Because he's the God. He's king. He's the lawgiver. Our job as the creature is to listen to the creator, to submit to him, to obey him. He's creator, we are the creature. He's the potter, we're clay. Isaiah 64:8. Oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Isaiah 29:16. Isaiah likes This metaphor, God is rebuking his people and telling them of the judgment that is going to come. Why is judgment coming? God says, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it? He has no understanding. That's actually humorous. Clay doesn't get to criticize potter. It's even more ridiculous than that. Clay cannot criticize potter. It's clay. And I think I can make a pretty good case that the distance between God and man is significantly greater than the distance between potter and clay. We do not get to tell God what to do. He is God. He has created everything, including you. He gets to declare how everything works, including All of us. And he has clearly declared, as we saw last week, the sinfulness of homosexuality. And that, for God's people, should be enough right there. But we'll keep going since this is so difficult for so many. But in the beginning, God, and that changes everything. Well, second point, homosexuality is a sin because of why God created us. Just because he created us to know him. Uh, A great Theologian died a few weeks ago, probably one of the more significant um, popular theologians of the 20th century. Uh, J.I. Packer uh, went home to be with the Lord on July 17th. I'm going to quote him a couple of times today, maybe like a tribute kind of thing. I don't know. Um, but his modern classic, I've recommended it a lot. Uh, Knowing God, please read the book, Knowing God. Um, but towards the beginning of this great book, he writes this. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy and delight and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. What of all the states that God ever sees man in gives God the most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. I wonder if we actually believe that that um, life itself, the thing that you were made for, the thing that you're supposed to be directing, everything about your life is this knowing of God. I don't know if we often live like that. Why is it so important to know this? Packer goes on. Once you are aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. You see, Scripture starts off by telling us That you were made by God, for God, to know God. That is your design. That is why God created you. God creates to communicate himself to his creatures. And since he is the source of life itself, which is true, if, if in the beginning God is true, then knowing him, the God who is life, knowing him is life then, And if you know that that's what you are here for, then Packer well points out that everything else will fall into place. This is foundational. This is first and foremost. God is creator. You are creature. Creature was made dependent upon and to know the creator. And wonder of wonders, we go on in Genesis 1 to find out that creature was also made like creator. And so as we progress through the narrative, God creates everything, the heavens and the earth, the whole thing. The account of Genesis 1 is crescendoing and building into the climax of creation in verse 27, where we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I don't know if you're aware of this, but we live currently in an identity-obsessed world, understandably. Uh, we, we really do need at some point to find an opportunity to walk through and explain things in terms you're probably hearing, like identity politics and intersectionality and all of these things that we're hearing and probably don't really understand, uh, but go a long way in explaining much of what's happening in our culture right now. And it's influencing your thinking more uh, than you are probably aware right now. One day, not today. Um, but we live in an identity-obsessed world, and it's actually only getting worse The problem is the things that the world uses to establish that identity. But the world rightly understands the importance of identity, and so does Scripture. And here it is. Here is your primary identity. Here is that which is essential, and that alone which is essential, image of God. Man and woman, creature, are created in the image and likeness of God. The creator. Scripture defines who we are as persons. Scripture defines our identity. And it defines it directly in relationship to God. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? That is a long conversation. There's lots of debates, lots of different things. I think it's it's a comprehensive idea. Um, But I think that many people are missing a key part of it these days uh, many have talked about the importance of man created in the image of God as the foundation of justice that is absolutely true right everyone regardless of color class or creed is created in the image of God thus there is worth and value and dignity that everyone equally possesses as created in the image of God again that's the why racial prejudice is so terrible It's the treating of an individual created in the image of God by another individual as if that first individual was somehow less than, simply because of color of skin. That's a sin. That prejudice is a sin because of the image of God. But today, everybody agrees with that today, today I'm arguing that homosexuality is a sin because of the image of God. You see, we were created... In some way to be like God. And as his image, as his icon, we were created then to reflect him, to reveal him, to show him, to glorify him. And we've got to get this. That's what everything is for. That's why you need to get out of the city sometime and go enjoy God's creation. God has crafted and created everything purposefully and uniquely to declare something about him. Something about his wisdom or his goodness, his power, or his beauty. So Pastor Mike just read for us in Psalm chapter 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. But even more than that, the humans declare the glory of God. And that's our third point. I'm mixing these two points a little bit here. This is the third reason why homosexuality is a sin. Because the reason that God created you was to know him, and in knowing him, to glorify him. We are meant to be like him and image him. And the first thing that the text says, after man is created in the image of God, and this is significant, it says, male and female he created. All right, so here, there's a hint. And then what's the very next thing that the text says? Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. All right, so here, at the very beginning of everything, at the very beginning of man, we learn something fundamental about us in verses 27 and 28. We learn both our identity and our role, or our And it's no small thing that what comes right after our identity as God's image is our function of being fruitful and multiplying. Why? Why does God make man? And why does he highlight this first as our function? What are we for? Can you answer that question? Why are you here? Is it to have the easiest, most comfortable life possible? Is it to have binged everything on Netflix? Like, are you running out of stuff? Um, Is it to get the best education? To build up the most retirement? Why are you here? What is life for? What is your purpose? Well, let's let the Westminster Shorter Catechism help you. We need to bring catechisms back. Uh, The most famous catechism question ever written the first What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God. And enjoy him forever. 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. Do all to the glory of God. All your spending of your money. All your working. All your time off. Your rest. Your entertainment. Your, your eating. Your, your exercising. Your talking with your kids. Your everything to the glory of God. Isaiah three seven. God is talking about his people. Everyone who is called by my name. It's wonderful. There's identity. We are called by his name. Whom I created for my own glory. There's function. Whom I formed and made. That is your end. End. What is the chief end of man? That just means purpose or goal. Or if you want to get fancy, or telos, the Greek word. And bear with me, because this is important. It relates directly to you and directly to the sinfulness of homosexuality. I said earlier that Genesis, the book of beginnings, is important because beginnings determine ends. And by that, I don't just mean like the end. I also mean goals, purposes, what we're for. This is what is called a teleology, which just sounds fancy. But teleology is simply just the study of design or purpose. We all understand this. Design matters. Design determines what something is for. And you cannot determine the goodness or the rightness of something without knowing what it is made for. Uh, we had a fun surprise uh, this week. Um, Henry very graciously gave us, my family, an old iPad. Um, that he, He's retired. Go congratulate Henry. He had some extra iPads. He gave us one that he didn't need anymore. It's pretty exciting. I'm getting fully sucked into the Apple world. Got the phone. I've got the iPad next, pant pant church. Uh, just kidding, just kidding. Um, but Melissa and girls are, are loving it. They're putting it to great use. It's a wonderful tool. I read on it uh, with a keyboard. I could do most of my writing and sermon work on it. The girls are using it for their school and for writing. Um, it, it's beautifully and brilliantly designed, but it's designed for a specific purpose. And it only functions correctly if it is used according to that purpose. I was working on this sermon uh, yesterday afternoon. Our neighbors have taken to nailing lots of things directly into the side of our house recently. Um, I think they're attempting to construct an entire tent city in their driveway, Uh, but it's very loud when someone is hammering right across the wall uh, from you. Uh, Were I a more gracious person, and I desired to love my neighbor by helping them in their city tent construction efforts through the nailing of large holes in my house, um, well, I actually wouldn't help them at all if I walked out with our new iPad and handed it to them and said, hey, here you guys go. I want to help. Use, use this. No. Right? The iPad would be destroyed. It's a wonderful tool, but it is not designed for the hammering of large nails into brick walls. That is not its telos. That is not its end or its Purpose. I and mean, we get this. A hammer is great for nailing things into a wall. Not great for writing sermons or reading books. Right? Design matters. And your design, your end, your purpose, according to that question, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. He is what you are for. I consider the Packer quote again. What were we made for? To know God. Right? To know Him And glorify Him. Just as the heavens declare His glory, you were created to declare His glory. And to glorify Him does not mean to make Him glorious or to add to His glory, but that you reflect it. You show it. You were meant to be a sort of God mirror and reflect something of His glory to the watching world. That's the purpose of your life. That is what it means to be made in His image. So, Why, then, is the very next verse, 27, created in his image, the very next verse following that creation in his image, the command to be fruitful and multiply? It's because of who this God is that we are like in imaging and reflecting. This all-glorious God is like Edwards uses the metaphor of a fountain. He is life. In Genesis 1, he creates more life. And then he commands that life to continue creating more life, to overflow with life. God wants more images, more beauty, more of his glory. He wants to multiply and spread goodness and love and life more and more and more so that we can more and more and more see and experience his goodness and his love and life. And so he creates his images, and then he commands his images to create more images. This is why Genesis 2.18, after all the, and God saw that it was good, and it was good, and it was very good, we get the first, it is not good. And what is not good? It is not good that man should be alone. Why not? Telos, design. There's more to it than this, but it's pretty simple. Because man, male, by himself cannot be fruitful and multiply. He thus then cannot glorify the God of all glory by creating more images of the God of all glory by himself. And that is not good. And so the rest of Genesis 2, verse 18, God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. And you know the rest of the story. God makes it clear that there is no other creature that is fit for Adam. Adam feels his loss, his lack, and then God fills his loss, his lack, by mysteriously but majestically creating from the man woman. And it is, it's is—it's a beautiful scene. Right? kind of God brings the woman to the man, and the man bursts out into the first song. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She is like me, but she is beautifully and wonderfully unlike me. She fits me. She complements me. And so we then get the famous marriage verse repeated multiple times by Jesus himself. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And listen, this isn't complicated. That right there, using only two chapters of the Bible, is what? Homosexuality is a sinful, using the words of Leviticus, abomination, and why God judges it so strongly. Because it directly contradicts God's good design and God's good goals with that good design. Homosexuality is so problematic, first, because it gives a false image, it gives a false picture of God. If we were created in His image to reveal Him to the world, homosexuality reveals Him wrongly. And it fails then at our chief end, which is to glorify Him. Why is it so failed to do that? Oh, because God made His image male and female and then made that image specifically for the purpose of being fruitful and multiplying. And being made in His image then must also include... Our physical bodies. Some people will try to separate our bodies from what it means to be created in the image of God. I disagree. If image of God is our fundamental identity and our physical bodies are part of that image, then, controversial claim alert, then our physical bodies are our fundamental identity. But this, is, this, this, this shouldn't be controversial. But it is now. Even increasingly in the church. Uh, that God made man... Male and female. And here we go. And he made those two things different. They're different. Biblically. Biology is beautiful. We should love science more than anyone. Uh, biology is wonderful. And our, our, our bodies tell us much about ourselves. Biblically, binary is beautiful. There are two sexes. There are two genders. Those are the same thing. And those things are determined by... Our bodies. You see, God creates us, and he tells us a whole lot about who we are based upon his creating us as male and female. And those are different. Some of you are right now starting to get a little kind of, what's he going to say? He's going to say something misogynistic? Is he gonna? No, but they're different. And we used to be able to say that and understand that. Can you explain in some way how men and women are different? Yeah, this used to just be common sense, but now it's crazy. Uh, it's, for some reason, it's, it's offensive. Um, but again, we're just, we're, just, we're just not the same. Uh, physically, we are not the same. Um, go read about the hormonal differences. Um, I, I, I told this story once, but you know, gyms are never going to be open again, so I'm kind of depressed about that. Um, but I remember the, like the first time my wife and I went to the gym together. Um, my wife is, I would say, a pretty fit and strong person uh, for her sex. I'm a pretty small and weak person for my sex. I lift exponentially more than my wife. And she is much fitter and stronger as a woman than I am as, as a man. Is that because I'm better than her? No. It's because we're different. She's better than me in every way. But God built me differently. There are wh- I have testosterone that she does not have. I have muscular differences, skeletal differences. We're different, and that's good. My wife is not like me, and that is very good. Um, I, it's, it's, I don't turn I'm trying to not say all the things that I want to say. Um, The heavens declare... All of creation, God, declares God's glory. You know, I think the thing, maybe, that most... uh, One of, I think, the most amazing things that declares the glory of God... How do I say this correctly? Um, It's... In in a non sketchy way, it's the female body. Not in any sort of... I'm not talking about attraction. I'm talking about just the ability of what God creates women to do. To create life. And to nurture it. And to... uh, Birth it and then to develop it. Uh, this is the most amazing thing in the world. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. No, I'm not fishing to try to convince my wife for a fifth for a fifth kid here. Um, but this it, fundamental to design. And it's beautiful and it's good and it demonstrates something about what God made us like. Our bodies define who we are and what we are for. Maybe that's a whole thing we need to talk about um, sometime. But it's this difference that makes the wonders of being fruitful and multiplying possible. The first thing God commands man, only possible in the coming together of the two into one. The one flesh union, which obviously involves sex. And that's good. It's so obvious. It's strange that we have to talk about this. But teleology, design, it's just pretty clear how things work and what goes with what and the result. And it's clear that all of this is utterly impossible in any sort of homosexual relationship. So it by nature is a denial of nature or design, created male and female, which are different, created to be oriented around and attracted to the other sex, that which is different. And it is a rejection of function which is to glorify God by being fruitful and multiplying because it is physically impossible to do so and thus God is robbed of his glory and God is rejected. I mean, God is mysteriously but wonderfully three in one. Three persons, one God, the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. There is in some mysterious way perfect unity and yet Distinctness, And the only analogy that comes close to picturing what God is like is marriage as the two, male and female, different, becoming one flesh. Same. And in so doing, revealing and reflecting God to the world. Again, now listen. I, should, I need to probably qualify and apologize like for a hundred things. And that doesn't mean that single people cannot reveal and reflect God. That doesn't mean that married people unable to have children are somehow um, less than. Right? The beautiful thing we see is about our design and how God then gives the Great Commission and how the giving of life and the developing of spiritual life, all of these things come into play, are involved. Um, but it does mean this is our fundamental design. And thus a relationship specifically designed in contradiction to that fundamental design cannot be good. I right? cannot honor God and cannot reveal him in the way that we are meant to. And I said earlier that everything was created by God to reveal his glory. Everything is about and for him. And, you know, our first thought is that, hey, you know, that's sort of selfish, sort of egotistical. Uh, but this reveals our failure to even come close to appreciating the perfect goodness and glory of God. Right? He is the center. He is the highest good. And so it is not wrong for him to center everything around himself. It is not wrong for our solar system to be centered on and revolve entirely around the sun. It's the biggest, densest, most glorious object. It is right and good and logical for everything else to revolve around it. Everything would collapse and fall apart if it was removed from the center. And it is right and good and logical for everything to revolve around the God of perfect goodness and glory. In seeking his own glory, he's actually at the same time then seeking your highest good. He's the designer. It's his world. He's the maker of the iPad, telling you how it works and what to use it for. Choose to use it instead as a hammer. Choose to go against its design. And you don't find freedom. You find death and destruction. It's no different for you. And God telling you that life is about him, that eternal life is knowing him, that you were created to glorify him. He's not limiting or constraining you. He's calling you to freedom. Freedom. And life and infinite joy because he knows that he and he alone is the only source of those things. You remove him from the sinner, everything collapses and falls apart. And this is why sin is so terrible. This is why the wages of sin is death. This is why the judgment of Sodom is so serious. It is because sin is a rejection of him who is the source of all of those things. He is glorious and good. And he's so good and kind that he reveals himself to us through his creation. You just go walking in the woods. You stumble on a home of brilliant architecture and beautiful aesthetics. And you don't wonder, hey, you know, did that somehow all come together over the course of billions of years through a combination of chance and natural selection? You no, know, that'd be utterly foolish. Actually, that's how scripture defines a fool. A fool says in his heart that there is no God. No, you wonder, hey, who built this beautiful and brilliant house? Who is its designer? Well, the brilliance and beauty of God's creation, the complexity of just your hand or your eye or one leaf infinitely surpasses any building. God reveals his greatness to us through his creation. He reveals himself also to us through conscience, through the law that is written on our hearts, through our inbuilt knowledge of good and bad and right and wrong. And he most importantly reveals himself to us through his work. And in so doing, he speaks to us. And here's the amazing part. He speaks to us after we have rejected him. He tells us who he is. He tells us about the problem our sin has created. He warns us about what will happen if we persist in that sin. It will be death. He says very clearly that homosexuality is an abomination, an aberration, a perversion that will result in death. And guys, he says the same thing about all. our sexual sins. And it is so gracious and kind that he does that. He's not trying to harm us, but to help us. He knows how his world works. He knows what we were made. For He made us to glorify Him and to reflect Him. And He gave us bodies through which we are to do that. And He gave us the gift of sex through which to do that. But He also told us how and where it works and the great danger of it outside of that context. Outside of the lifelong one-flesh union of one man and one woman. And so, listen, any sexual activity outside of that context leads only to our destruction. So we're not talking about just this one sin that you may not struggle with. We're talking about sin that all of us maybe struggle with. Men, looking at pornography this week, I am talking to you. This is what this results in, your destruction. Let me quote Packer's knowing God one more time. I don't think this one's too long. I think this is very, very helpful. It's related to what we've been talking about. Listen to how Packer talks about design and what results when we go up against that. Here's what Packer says. We are familiar with the thought that our bodies are like machines, needing the right routine of food and rest and exercise if they are to run efficiently, and liable if filled up with the wrong fuel, alcohol, drugs, poison, to lose their power of healthy functioning and ultimately to seize up entirely in physical death. What we are perhaps slower to grasp is that God wishes us to think of our souls in a similar way. As rational persons, we were made to bear God's moral image. That is, our souls were made to run on the practice of worship, law-keeping, truthfulness, honesty, discipline, self-control, and service to God and others. If we abandon these practices, not only do we incur guilt before God, but we also progressively destroy our own souls, conscience atrophies. The sense of shame dries up. Man, that's characterizing our culture right now. The sense of shame dries up. One's capacity for truthfulness, loyalty, and honesty is eaten away. One's character disintegrates. One not only becomes desperately miserable, one is steadily being dehumanized. Sexual laxity does not make you more human, but less so. This is, this, is so, this is so helpful. Listen, it brutalizes you, and it tears your soul to pieces. The same is true wherever any of God's commandments are disregarded. We are only living truly human lives just so far as we are laboring to keep God's commandments no further. This is what all sin does. But also, listen, sexual sin does this in a unique way because of the importance of our design, and our, our function. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I wish we could spend time on that and, and unpack that. Uh, but it says that there is something uniquely damaging about sexual sin because of sex's powerful role and capacity to create oneness. It, it, it's designed to create that one and solidify that one flesh union used outside of that context It's just one of the most destructive things in the world. And so as Packer says, as we pursue this wrongly, we progressively destroy our own souls. We become less human, brutalized, and our soul is torn to pieces. As we more and more abandon the God we were meant to know and run on, the God in whose image we were created, the God who is life, continue to rebel against him. Continue to reject him. Continue to rob yourself of the only fuel you are meant to run on. And instead, fill yourself only with poison and you will die. Because God's law is good, it is meant for our good. It's it's his instruction manual for his world. But it's not just some sort of like out there disconnected from him law. It's a revelation and a reflection of himself. His perfect law reflects his perfect Character, right? Think of Jesus in John 1 being explained as the, the word of God. You cannot reject God's word without rejecting God himself. You cannot reject God's law without rejecting God himself. And when you reject the good God of life, you get evil and death. That's what Genesis 19 is screaming at us to get. Yes, the wages of all sin is death. But there is a unique way in which homosexuality rejects God's order and design uh, that he wants to draw your attention to. If we are created to know him and to glorify him, to worship God and to serve him, then the essence of sin is to worship self and to serve self. In a way, then, homosexuality would be the ultimate form of of self-worship and self-service. And we have to talk about this. Because the main thing that sets the sin of homosexuality apart from other sins right now is the vehemence in which our world insists that not only is this thing not a sin, but that it is good and that it is loving. And that for you to be good and loving, you have to agree with it and you have to affirm it and you have to celebrate it. And yet, here now we've seen God's word affirm very clearly that homosexuality is a sin, and uh, hopefully a little bit now, why homosexuality is a sin. Simply because of God's good creation. And so the question for us today is, listen, will we allow the scriptures to speak? Right? Will we allow them to have their way? Right? Is God's word actually our only authority? Uh, let's, let's, take a, let's, let's stop speaking in possessive uh, plural. Is it your only authority? Do you have the ability to sit here and kind of nod along like, yeah, 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 but then to leave from here and then kind of think and do the exact opposite of what it is that we are affirming right now? Are you going to allow Scripture to speak and to define and inform your life and allow God's Word to have its way in your life? Are you going to listen to the world or the Word, even if it puts you at great odds with that world? So we must be willing to do this, Uh, and we must be willing to do this to be loving, because if God's word is true, then we help no one by leaving them in their sin. We help no one by celebrating and affirming uh, what we've just seen results in death and destruction. We help no one by not calling them back to the God who is love and life itself. But to do that, people have to first understand how they have rejected and offended the God who is love and life. I grew up in the church my entire life. I, you know, I you know, did all the right things, did all, did all the stuff, did all the things. I was a youth group all-star, pastor's kid. You know, I don't think I was saved until later in college. And it took God utterly destroying me by revealing to me my own sinfulness and the depravity of my own heart. And we could really get into that if we would like, and I'll start to get upset. Um, God really showed me who I was apart from him. And do you know what that did? Oh, here's why Christ is so good. Here's what he has done. Because I am this, and yet he is that, and he comes for me. Oh, that's, that's what I want. And so we have to be willing to call sin, sin. God brought me to life by making it clear that my sin was sin and it was a horrible affront to his holy and righteous and good person. And we have to understand why sin is never good for anyone. It's not good for anyone. And this lifestyle that our world so celebrates that has whole months of pride about that, we, that says we must support actually, according to this, is doing nothing but dehumanizing and killing and disintegrating souls. So we must speak graciously and kindly, of course, but boldly because of love. Love which hates the sin that destroys lives and separates the God of life. And so we must, fourth point, no time, I'll summarize. We must must speak of Christ as the Redeemer. Homosexuality is not a sin only because of the nature of creation, but because of the nature of redemption. I can't remember where I heard this. I heard it attributed to Luther, but I couldn't find it. Um, but it was a summary of salvation in five words. Out of self, into Christ. Right? Out of self, into Christ. Right? Sin is selfishness. It is the turn inward. It is pride, love of self. Uh, well, again, that, that's the fundamental nature of of sin, you know, the cool sounding Latin phrase that I love, in curvitas, in se. Sin is being curved in on oneself. Salvation, then, is about being brought out of self, turned away from self and toward Christ, brought into Christ, brought out of my sinful self, brought into the righteous Christ. And so we bring people out by calling out their sin, Not just the sin of homosexuality, but all sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of all of that sin is death. And then we bring people in by proclaiming to them the Son. We preach the good news of the gospel that though sin separates us from God, though sin deserves God's eternal judgment, God has made a way for that sin to be dealt with and put away by putting that sin on His Son. God the Creator is also God the Redeemer. God rejected and offended by His creation. Man created to know and glorify Him. He is so good, God is, that He sent His own Son, Jesus Christ. Perfect, sinless, the image of God. Perfectly knowing God. Perfectly glorifying God. He sent Him to take my place. The penalty of my sin had to be paid for. Genesis 19 is what I and you and each and every one of us deserves for that sin. But in the gospel, Jesus comes for each and every one of his own. And then he takes our Genesis 19. He takes the right and righteous wrath of God for our sin, our our sexual sin, our every sin. And Jesus bled and died to take away that sin. And in so doing, to restore us to the God that we were created to restore the image of God in us, to give us new birth, to give us new hearts that can once again know and glorify him, to give us life, the thing that we were made for, which is God himself. That's why we are and must be against the sin of homosexuality and all sin, because we know that all sin separates. Sin separates us from the perfectly holy God, and we know how good And glorious this God is. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We've seen his glory. We've experienced his love. And we know that he is better than life. And so we then want others to know that he is better than life. And to experience that. We long for others to be rescued from the sin that is only darkness, death, and destruction. And experience and be brought into the light of eternal life. And pleasure and satisfaction that is found only in the Lord. So church, we must be willing to take this stand. I mean, there's, there's, there's no option. There's, there's no question about what we do in this situation. Christians cannot celebrate what God condemns. God has spoken very clearly. Will we listen? Are we, are you willing to be ridiculed, marginalized, suffer? lose your job because we believe God's word is right and good. And true, Because we love people enough to tell them the bad news of the death that their sin deserves, but the glorious good news of the life that is offered in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. If so, then we must be willing to call homosexuality a sin and call everyone to repentance and faith. Let's stop there and let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Please bow with me. Father, my words have been many. Father, I pray that your word would be our focus. I pray that your word would be clear and true. I pray that you would somehow work through my words um, to draw our attention to you and to your goodness, to your grace, to your kindness. Father, help us to both um, see the sinfulness, specifically of the sin that is addressed in Genesis 19, but not to uh, see it from afar and from a distance and to be prideful and arrogant and thankful that maybe we don't struggle with that sin, so we're, we're good. Uh, but to then realize um, that all of our sin, Father, deserves your righteous wrath. Father, all of our sin deserves the eternal death of our souls um, in hell. Father, help us to believe in the sinfulness of sin. Help us to believe in your holiness. Help us to believe in the reality and the rightness of hell um, as, as punishment. For those who have rebelled against you and are unrepentant and returning to you, you offer all who come to you life and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Father, this is a particularly difficult topic for many. And so I ask that you would shape our hearts and our minds and conform them according to your word. Give us great wisdom, Father, as we live in this country, this culture, Father, this city, that is so against what your word is saying and is for. Father, may we never capitulate and cave and, and give in um, so that we would be safe and comfortable and affirmed um, by those around us. Father, help us not to be arrogant and noxious jerks either. But Father, help us to call all sin, sin, and to do so humbly because your grace um, humbles us infinitely, Lord. But I pray that we would humbly and then boldly speak very clearly where you have spoken and that we would love people um, by sharing the truth with them and pointing to Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would use us Use these individuals, Father, as they work in the world in a very difficult place to affirm and hold many of the things that we have said today. I pray that you would guard them, but I pray that you would guide them, um, give them courage, give them boldness, but also give them grace and kindness and wisdom. Father, guide us and give us wisdom as a church. Father, use us to advance and further your kingdom. Father, use us always to preach Christ crucified uh, no matter the cost. Thank you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.